Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Hello and welcome to the Life Lessons Podcast with me, Simon Mundy. This podcast has a simple mission, to have discussions that reveal something important about life and how best to live it. My guests range from the biggest sporting names on the planet through to neuroscientists, philosophers, psychologists and world-renowned thinkers. We talk about things like how to skillfully relate to uncomfortable thoughts and feelings, the power of acceptance and psychological flexibility, how to get your circadian rhythms in sync to feel your best, right through to the nature of reality. These conversations and the bite-sized episodes have the power to change your life. I'm going to start this episode with a quote from Jamie Carragher. It's all about winning trophies, really. Well, is that actually true? To dive into our cultural obsession with winners and winning at all costs, I was joined by the silver medal winning Olympic rower and former diplomat turned business coach and author of the excellent book, The Long Win, Kath Bishop. Kath argues it's time to redefine what success means. She explains why winning isn't even working for many of the winners and why the win-at-all-cost mentality squashes creativity in sport, business, politics and education. Kath Bishop, how are you? I'm really well, thanks, Simon. How are you doing? I'm very good. I'm delighted to have you on. You're a, a fascinating character. In fact, what is it about the rowing class of the noughties? Because you're an interesting bunch. So I've already spoken to on the podcast, Catherine Granger, now in charge of UK sport, Annie Vernon, who wrote a brilliant book, Mind Games, and then there's you as well, a three-time Olympian, but also a blooming diplomat. I mean, talk about master of all trades. So it's a good point. I think we spent a lot of time on long training camps and that caused us all to have, you know, fascinating conversations and to be doing all sorts of other things. I guess a lot of us will have got into the sport, particularly on the female side uh, at university. And so actually we were able to do sort of our school studies up to that point. We didn't have to narrow Um, what we're interested in in life, I think, in order to row. Um, We might then have gone through a bit of a period whilst we're actually training in the Olympics where we didn't do much else. But often we came to the sport already being interested in other things in life. Do you think rowing attracts a curious mind? I do. I am obviously very biased, but I think there's something about all the things you have to manage in your mind at the same time. You are in tune with other people in the boat and how they're moving. You've got to be in tune with the water, with that kind of natural environment, sensing the wind and what's happening there. So there is something um, very beautiful about being on a river, trying to make a boat go as fast as it can at the same time as other people and managing all the unpredictables in that environment that I think is part of, yes, just being curious. We, we never really know. We never take a perfect stroke. Uh, we never know what's possible because once you come together, you can become more than just 
um, you, you're looking to become more than just the sum of the parts. And so it's that search for speed. Mm. And I know you know Ben Hunt Davis as well, who was in the male class of, of the noughties. And yeah, he always said, you know, they would seek perfection and they would mark their races out of 10. And when he won Olympic gold, even in that race, he still didn't quite reach perfection. Well, that's what keeps you going, isn't it? That pursuit is the mastery, actually. It's that you're always learning. You can always take a better stroke. You can always make the next stroke better than the one before. And, and that is part of the enjoyment, really. What can I adapt, do slightly differently um, that keeps you going through hours and hours of training? It's a bit of a paradox, isn't it? It's seeking perfection whilst not being a perfectionist. Well, that's right. I am a bit nervous of that word perfection because we're seeking something we can't get. And there's a danger then that you're you're never getting what you want. Um, actually, it's it's just seeking improvement. It's always seeking just what else can I do? What else can I bring to this? Before we dive into the theme of our chat, and frankly, I'm very excited about it because it's it's one of those chats that I particularly like where it's got a real philosophical bent. And I think what we're talking about may actually be reassuring essentially to an anxiety that people don't even realise they have. I think so, and particularly in these times when we're challenged by lots of things that we um, didn't expect, then, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to, to us discussing what it is that's important in life, what really matters to us, um, and how we might reframe that. But before we do that, let's talk about your diplomatic career. Um, so you and I have chatted a few times, haven't we, over the last couple of months? And I was reading a book by a, a man we both have quoted each other a few times, Alain de Botton. Um, so, <laughs> That's right. So he talks about diplomacy being the art of advancing an idea or cause without unnecessarily inflaming passions or unleashing catastrophe. Is, is that sum it up? That's a pretty good, that's a pretty good summary. Well, one of the things, one of the things I really loved about diplomacy was this, this complexity of, it's just about humans. And however much we learn about the history and we'd have great big technical briefing documents when we were going into negotiations, it was all about the people in the room and how you connect with them and how you understand what's going on for them beneath the formalities, beneath the titles, the job titles, the flags, the, the sort of superficial bits. And I think that's what um, Alain de Bottom was getting at. You know, you really, really see the sort of heart of who we are and how we connect. I've got a nice couple of quotes just about diplomacy. An ability to disarm by reacting in an unexpected ways. For example, in the face of a tirade, instead of going on the defensive, a diplomatic person might go and suggest lunch. <laughs> uh, I tell you, that wasn't very good in the war zone. Uh, it didn't always work particularly well when uh, it wasn't very easy to kind of pop out for a, for a quick lunch. I watched a talk that you gave. One wise person said that there were three key, the key elements to being a diplomat, which kind of tie in what, with the rest of what we're saying. You know, and it was all to do with connection, wasn't it? It was. I mean, I can remember before I went on my first posting to Sarajevo that I had this sort of opportunity to meet with a very wise and eminent ambassador. And I thought he was going to give me this geopolitical lecture on wars in the Balkans and the history and the politics. But he didn't. He just advised me that the most important thing was going to be connecting with the people I came into contact with. And it didn't matter really who they were, whether in the hierarchy, because you never know who's going to be influential. And he said there are three things that you really need to kind of remember there. And the first thing is to get to know who they are 
beyond the role, beyond the job title? You know, what is it they care about it? You know, what gets them up in the morning? What are the things that are really, really important to them? Their values, the way they live their life. And the second thing in order that helps you to understand them better is to listen more than you speak. So again, sometimes we have this sense that actually to influence others, we need to speak more, whereas it's actually the opposite. We need to understand at a deeper level where other people are coming from before you can start to hope to influence. And then the third thing was to then build on what you have in common um, and that there is always something you've got in common, even though it might look externally as if you're from completely different worlds, there will always be something in common. And your job as a diplomat is to find that. And just to relate that to the broader world outside diplomacy, you talked about finding the person behind the role. In everyday life, that could be the person behind the facade, the, every, the mask, if you like, that everyone wears. I think you're right. You know, when you go into a, a meeting or if you go into work, then you, you see a job title, and you immediately start judging them by, you know, account manager or all these sort of slightly fang- inhuman titles that, that get, you know, chucked around, director of this, human resources, all of these things we make kind of quick judgments about. And they really are quite meaningless. We don't really know what they do on a day-to-day basis in their job. And we don't really know who they are as a person. And that's what we want to try and connect with rather than think, ah, it's an HR director, therefore this and this and this is going to come up and this and this and this is what they're going to want from me or what they're going to like or not like. It's about not going down that route and actually allowing people to to be who they are. And there's there's a great research actually about how crafting your own job title is um, a brilliant way of A, connecting to your own role, but explaining it better to other people and getting away from these sort of, um, you know, generic titles where you're a manager or a, you know, director and it's just doesn't tell you anything no no indeed um you know the question everyone always asks is the dinner party question what do you do and we're a bit overly fixated on that right let's talk about your rowing career three times an olympian so you went seventh and then came ninth not ideal but then building up to 2004 silver that i've i've already discussed with with Catherine granger so can you just give me a brief summary of the first two and then let us zero in on that third experience Yeah, so, I mean, the first one in Atlanta was a real learning, you know, I was new to the team, Um, you know, Atlanta in itself was was a kind of quite, you know, overwhelming, quite a hostile Olympics in some ways, it wasn't the big friendly stuff we got to know in sort of Sydney and London, so it's quite a kind of tricky environment to manage, but it was all new to me, Um, and actually that's pre-lottery days, so we're talking, you know, literally last century now, aren't you, so no one's going to remember that anymore. And uh, it was, but it was the, the Kickstarter for the lottery, wasn't it, really? It because was. it was such a disaster. Exactly, yeah. Only one gold medal. Um, I mean, for me personally, I felt sort of disappointed to come seventh, but I also felt, okay, and now I know what this is about. Um, I think I can do better. And when I got home, the lottery process sort of kicked off the next year in 97. So I thought, okay, there's going to be support. Because the big difference also that lottery brought was an equal focus on men and women. Whereas very much in the lead up to 96, um, you know, it just wasn't very equal at all. And lots of sports where there was a brilliant heritage of men's rowing. So that's where all the investment was. That's where the equipment was. That's where the coaches were. You know, that's the system that was already in existence. And we were sort of trying to create something else on the side. But it was when the lottery said, no, it's got to be equally funded, that that transformed women's Olympic sports, which have just gone from strength to strength. So seventh, then ninth. Yeah, um, you know, that's just a 
uh, just one of those huge moments in my life, really, where I thought the world had ended because I'd come ninth. Um, I mean, I trained really, really hard physically in fantastic shape, breaking records, British records, world record on the rowing machine. So physically really good, training really, really hard, lots of gains being made. But all of this cultural stuff, you know, the way you do it, all of the stuff we've already been touching on about the connection, about your purpose, about who you are, about how you connect and collaborate and communicate. None of that was really visible yet. None of that was being talked about. It was all hardcore. How much can you do? Do you want to win? Get out there, do more, more, more. Um, and that isn't enough to perform at a highest level. And for me, I'd found it quite a brutal period, really. And then to kind of come away with a result that was, you know, worse than four years ago, I felt absolutely devastated by it. I felt, OK, I must be worthless now. I sit at the back of the plane. No, none of the managers or coaches want to talk to me now because I performed badly. I, I must be a failure. And I went through that awful kind of dip that unfortunately a lot of sports people go through. I mean, I'm not saying it's not wrong to be sad about you know not delivering your best performance or not feeling you've been able to but it is sad to feel that actually I am of you know less worth as a human being and to be destroyed for you know over a year 12 to 18 months to really separate out the fact that I exist on this earth as a human being and I'm also a rower who tries to make boats go as fast as I possibly can um, and that you know so it was a huge crisis point but of course that's the richest learning point. Mm. Uh, just to pick up on something you said there, th this idea that one's self-worth is tied in with the results someone gets, clearly a big issue in sports. Mm. Um, you know, I've had episodes about identity and how athletes in particular struggle with retirement. And I know yeah. there was um, the state of sport survey done by the BBC. And I know that you've, you've referenced this as well. And, and I think it's like half of sports people really really struggle with retirement and and to what degree do you think that it is tied down to or what what is the correlation with the with having one's identity and self-worth bound up in how you do in a race i think it's foolish i think it's you're setting yourself up for for failure and and it's it's wrong that's not what it should be about it should be a joy to go out there you should be exploring what's possible you should be just racing and doing something you love against other brilliant people who you respect so you know to to think that that is somehow defining who you are it's such a dangerous route we've seen it time and time again that's not what sport should be about it's not good for the individuals and it's misleading for for people watching it who somehow think oh okay they're they're worth more because they've won and i may be worth less because i can't do that and it's clearly endemic in sport and in broader society more than we realize as we'll talk about but yeah let's let's move on to 2004 where you know you did significantly better yes Thank goodness. So at this point, I'd actually taken a year off um, after Sydney because, um, you know, I was devastated. I'd lost self-belief. I just didn't think I could do it anymore. And that's when I was also the diplomatic career was kind of really getting going. And the course of break, getting new perspective was the best thing I could have done. You know, just seeing that there's a wider world out there. And my goodness, there are more important things than boats going backwards on lakes was really refreshing. And, you know, that also, of course, gave me time to think, to reflect, to think about actually, you know, there were, there were other things in performance I could have done differently. You know, I spoke to people, I got feedback, I listened, I listened hugely. 
and heard things that, you know, actually, yeah, I was physically strong, but this whole cultural approach to how I was turning up to what I was um, thinking was important in the way I acted and thought and behaved each day and behaved with people around me and the things that, you know, I was tying to the rest of my life, if you like, through doing rowing. I just hadn't really worked any of those out. So I went on that kind of period to think about what does this mean to me and, and what would it mean to have another go? Is it worth having another go? Can I frame it differently? Can I approach it differently? Because if I do go back for third Olympics, then the same might happen again. I might come 10th this time. I might come 11th. Um, I've got to be ready for that, but I've got to be able to do it in a positive way. And, and that was the challenge. Can I come back and put in a different performance by having a different experience as well? We had a different coach at that point. So the culture was starting to shift in the squad, in the environment. And the environment is a huge part of determining whether this is about who you are as a person or not. What gets rewarded, the way you get treated as to, you know, if it's different, whether you go fast or whether you go slow, then your identity starts to become connected with it. And so the environments we set for high performance sport are crucial to this. Mm. So 2004, alongside Kath Granger, you'd won the world championships the year before, but I know you'd had difficulty in terms of, you know, Catherine had had a problem with her back. And sort of, you know, you know, you'd had to really try and get up to speed in, in a pretty short time leading up to the Olympics, but got a silver. So how did you feel about that silver? I mean, did you have um, extremes of emotion? You know, how, how did you react to that? How did you see it? So that's a, a, a sort of a, a huge question that I think has been in my mind for, <laughs> for however long it is now, 16 years. You know, what, what does that mean, winning silver? It's the ultimate um, position that causes torment. Um, the, the research that the Cornell University psychologist did talking about silver medal syndrome said they looked, they analysed the faces and the emotions and the, the words used by medalists on the podium and found that gold medalists were happy and bronze medalists were happy because they were glad they didn't come forth. So they used a different comparison point. And, got, and silver medalists are sort of left slightly traumatised that they didn't win. Um, but, you know, I, in the moment, I went through all sorts of emotions, largely exhaustion um, and a sort of relief that the pressure is over. Having come seventh, having come ninth, you know, I was delighted to be on the podium. I was, you know, I, I think I just felt, you know what, yes, I wanted to win, but, you know, this is a result I can live with. You know, I can go and get on with the rest of my life. We did our best out there and that's hugely important. You know, we raced our hearts out. We hadn't had an ideal preparation, you know, all year. We'd had really messed up winter um, and been on catch up since then. And, you know, and difficulties in that week, the, fourth, the first race had not gone well. So, you know, even sort of five days ago, people were thinking, oh, no, this is this is not going to happen at all for, for, for the two Catherines. So, you know, I just sort of thought I'm so glad we went out and, and raced as hard as we could on that day. And, and to stand on the podium, it, you know, is a, is a very proud moment. But I think, you know, that in the back of my mind, I had all those different thoughts going through my head of, you know, all that banter about silver medalists. You're the first loser. You know, all that stuff that you get in the, you know, in that macho kind of world of only winning counts, all these phrases that you hear in the playground, that you hear growing up, that I think have, you know, since then also made me hyper interested and fascinated by our obsession with what winning means. Yes. So it is all about what winning means. 
and the obsession that there is with winning and being a winner, which leads us on to the theme of this conversation and the excellent book you've written called The Long Win. So can you just summarise, if you can, the path, if you like, from Athens in 2004 to your book and the outlook and the message that you were looking to share in it? Yeah, brilliant. So initially, the, the it wasn't really a book that, that was going to come out of this. It was, it was me just making sense of an incredibly intense decade of training as an Olympic rower and thinking, you know, was it worth it? What did I get out of that? You know, what does that medal mean? How are other people judging me? Um, you know, I seem to be very received very differently. Now I have a medal. That's quite interesting. What's going on there? What about all the brilliant people I trained with who didn't win a medal, but were still brilliant? And I learned loads from them and they were as good as me, but things didn't come together in their crew on the same day. And I had all of those questions. And for a while, I just thought it was my own reckoning, my own need to sort of come to terms with an incredibly intense experience. But over time, I didn't find the topic um, going away. I found that I kept being confronted by the question of winning. So first of all, within the diplomatic world, I found that there were constantly um, challenges within negotiations. If people wanted to win a negotiation and winning meant it came at somebody else's cost, so the enemy, the, the opponent had to lose, then we'd always get really stuck. And again, one of the key challenges for diplomats is to get out of this zero-sum game mentality where I can only win at your cost to get to a much more of a win-win mentality if you like where together we create something bigger that we will benefit from that we can both benefit from and so again this language and the psychology if you like of being obsessed by winning and what winning looks like and what winning means was something I encountered in a completely different world Then in the work I do now, working in businesses, helping develop teams and leaders and teaching at business schools, I find the language of winning everywhere again and this sort of sense of we want to build winning teams, we want to be number one in the marketplace and all of this winning language that then often isn't really getting a good impact. So people aren't very motivated, you know, staff engagement scores might be low And there's a sort of sense of what's happening here. And when you look behind what winning means, there isn't that much of a sense of a real purpose or anything deeper. Yes, it's interesting you say that, actually, because so many times people talk about finding the why. Like, why are you getting out of bed, particularly in sport? Why are you getting out of bed to train at, you know, silly o'clock? You know, and then people can say, for example, oh, it's for that gold medal or it's for that triumph. Then the follow-up question really is, but why do you want that? And we'll come back to that. But you mentioned the language of winning. So something quite interesting that I've learned from reading your stuff is actually how the word winning has been somewhat distorted from its original meaning. Yeah, absolutely. So if we trace the word right back to its roots in kind of medieval times, it was about effort, it was about labour, it was about uh, gaining things, but it wasn't about beating an opponent. That was completely absent from the original meaning of the word. And that's something that's kind of come in where, you know, winning is a relative thing, where I only win if somebody else does badly. 
And actually that pervades a lot of society. It pervades how promotions often work. You're all competing to be promoted. So I want my colleague to do badly because that's the only way I get promoted. It even it's in the classroom from the from the word go that you you compete by putting your hands up to give an answer. And actually, I don't want somebody else to give the right answer because then I can't give the right answer. And I want them to give the wrong answer if they're picked on, because then I might be able to pick the right answer if if I go next and then I look good. So all of this sense that winning is somehow relative has kind of corrupted us from actually a sense much more of gaining something, of putting effort in. What is it? Comparison is the thief of joy. Like you talked about the... um... The bronze medalist, they're a bit happy because they're comparing themselves to the fourth, but the second is is comparing up, so they're feeling less happy. But just to elaborate a little bit on the language, when we talk about the language of winning, some of the words that might come up are sacrifice, pain, fighting, and that kind of thing. Why don't you share some of the other words that perhaps is a healthier way of, of looking at things and some of the language that would feed into that? Sure. Yeah, I love a bit of Roosevelt. Thank you for that. That prompted me to to remember, of course, the etymology of the word compete, competere, is striving together, not against somebody else. It's striving together. And again, so that's another perfect example of how we now see competing um, in oppositional terms. Um, yes, you led on to the kind of fighting battle language that is so often used in sports, but also used in business, also used in politics, also used in fighting pandemics. Um, and that, that immediately gets us into an, an oppositional world where we're somehow we've got to do better than somebody else. Um, and actually that that often will hold us back from exploring wider possibilities, collaborating with our opponents, if you like, because together we probably bring something really different. And actually, at the most creative entrepreneurial end of business, you often see what, what would traditionally be opponents. They are working together because their field is ex- expanding and progressing at such a fast pace that it doesn't make sense for them to be just competing against each other because there'll be new people coming into the market and the market itself is changing and what customers want and what technology is and is enabling is changing all the time so actually it's about just exploring as fast as possible and using anyone and everyone within your area to to do that to kind of combine forces so yes i think we need to get away from fighting you know trying to to win at all costs trying to beat things or beat other people to be in a much more collaborative mindset where we're sharing we're creating together there's a joy in what we do there's a love for what we do there's connection collaboration all of those sorts of words that it's really we know we're not on our own against others we're all here trying to bring our best in order to explore new areas We've got to be much more creative in order to cope with the challenges we're being thrown. And if we're stuck in this oppositional world, we're, we're just holding ourselves back. You talk about winning not always working, which is quite a nice line, whether that be in sports. And you talk about, I saw you talk about Rebecca Romero when she'd won gold and was walking back to the Olympic Village and described feeling incredibly empty. And on this podcast, I've spoken to Johnny Wilkinson, whose real low point came after the 2003 World Cup, when he had this realisation that, you know, this promise, this cultural promise that at the end of the rainbow is a pot of gold was actually a fiction, a fallacy. So there are sports example of, of people winning and, and actually 
finding themselves to not be uh, experiencing the satisfaction that to some degree was promised. But that's also true in business and in schools, isn't it? Schools, we focus on exams and and business, we focus on the bottom line, which can feel incredibly meaningless. Yeah, and it's often short term as well. I mean, I do find it extraordinary the number of stories now in sport where winners are just feeling, you know, empty, depressed, nothing there and no wider meaning. You know, there is such a long list. You can go back to Mark Spitz is another great example. Victoria Pendleton, Tyson Fury after knocking out Klitschko. Johnny Wilkinson, another brilliant example. There are so many. And, and that's what really kind of kept me with this subject because I thought initially I thought it's just my problem. It's because I didn't win. You know, I'm, I can't deal with that and I've got to work that through. But then I was thinking, hang on a minute. If the winners are feeling like this then something else is going on here that that really isn't working as it could, as it should, and that we need to kind of look at again. And as you say, in education, we seem to have this obsession, particularly in the UK, US quite similar, Japan. Um, There are other experiments going on in other parts of the world. The Nordic countries are much better at um, the way they've reshaped education now to be much more collaborative and creative. But we're still in a very much right answer, wrong answer mentality, where if you've got all your A grades, then you're set for life. You get into the right university, you go on and you get your internship and off you go on this quite narrow pathway. But then what I see at the other end when I'm working with leaders and organisations is this complete lack of creativity or ability to collaborate or innovate, which is desperately needed for companies to adjust and adapt in the modern world. But of course, none of these skills are being developed. They're actually being kicked out at a, at a young age. They're actually being sort of hammered out of us. You know, there's no option for a creative answer. You've got to give the right answer. That's what gets the points. It kills me watching how like English is is getting taught to my eight year old son, where you know it's literally a sort of a point per adjective, and you know you learn this formula, and I'm just tearing my hair out at, at how we've reduced the beauty of English into some formulaic pattern. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot that just is not enabling us to tap into the best of who we are. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. At school, exams are such a big deal. I mean, you know, I remember doing my GCSEs and my A-levels and and they felt like the be-all and end-all. And it's only when you look back. I mean, clearly they've you know, then enabled me to, to be fortunate enough to go to university and so on and so forth. But they didn't need, in hindsight, to have anywhere near the weight that, that they had. You know, I know lots of incredibly happy, well-rounded, successful, in society terms, people who didn't do well in exams. 
And then, you know, in businesses, you, you talk about that sort of zero-sum game. What I find interesting is within big organisations, often you even have that zero-sum game within the same organisation. The organisation may claim to be operating in one direction, but actually the reality of it is departments are hell-bent to beat each other within an organisation. I know, it's madness. It's sort of self-sabotage. Why would you want to set up internal competition that only um, it, it stops people thinking about the bigger impact about ways in which they could work together and create something new and different it keeps people stuck in within their silo it stops them from learning which is also unhelpful from seeing different perspectives I mean I'm sure there are things other than your education that have also been incredibly useful to you um, you know we we increasingly see with the entrepreneurial world how much variety there is um, and how possible it is to succeed with a whole host of different skills. And yet the people who do badly in their GCSEs are never invited back into schools to give a talk. No, no, no. We get the we get the A grade students. We get the Olympic athletes. We get this sort of high, high end of quite a sort of narrow definition of achievement. They come back and give talks to hundreds of students. And that's just impractical. It doesn't make sense for you know those students to only see often at such a narrow um, set of, of role models we just don't value things that are so valuable not just from a human experience point of view but actually needed for our economy for our society and to come back to um, that chap that we both like Alain de Botton and I know that you and I have both watched a, a really interesting video that he spoke about in terms of the the snobby society we live in not not snobby in in perhaps the way that people classically have thought about it but in terms of snobbiness of being ordinary and he argues that actually ordinary in the modern world that we know is actually terrific because it means a roof over your head it means decent food but he says the snake in the grass is that psychologically we now have imprinted into society this belief that ordinary is not good enough and that lack of acceptance is actually making us sick. It's leading to mental illness because if we don't reach a certain level, then we consider ourselves failures. And obviously this is exacerbated by things like social media and stuff like that. He puts it brilliantly, doesn't he, that, yes, we've made it not OK to be ordinary when ordinary now in our civilised society often means, you know, a lovely job and a family and a house and the ability to go on holiday. But these things are not enough. But it's bonkers because statistically, most of us have to be average. We can't all be Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> Um, it just doesn't make sense and nor should we want to be uh, or want to be like that. So we have somehow, again, in a slightly self-sabotaging way, set ourselves up for a situation where most of us will fail. That doesn't seem sensible, does it? Definitely not. And actually, he came out with quite a nice line, which is, if you see someone with a Ferrari, don't envy them, have empathy for them, because it normally, he suggests that they have a a need for love that wasn't met at some point. And this leads me on to an interesting question that people who go on to be world champions or people who go on to be, you know, mega, mega successful. A few people have said this, that oftentimes people who are mega, mega successful, whether it's in sport business, whatever, often have an internal driver, which is born of actual disquiet. Yes, I think there was some research that UK Sport did about uh, trying to look at the differences between medalists and non-medalists and certainly adversity and experience of adversity um which could be at any level um 
didn't, you know, it, it felt a diversity to, to that individual, even though it might not seem that big a deal to somebody else. But that was a key part of, uh, of the psychological makeup that A, gave you resilience and persistence, but also maybe it sort of left you feeling that you were searching for something and, and looking for something and driving yourself towards something that you weren't yet, a sort of sense of inadequacy sometimes uh, as well. I certainly think, I mean, most of us probably have all of those elements of insecurity kind of swirling around somewhere inside us. But the question is, do you then sort of hone in on that part of you and only develop that and only rely on that? And I think, again, sometimes in the high-performance sporting environments we've over relied on that part of an athlete's psyche it's a great driver let's use it but let's not only use that because actually it, it a runs out it tends to be very exhausting and draining and so it can be um you know short not last as long as when an athlete is kind of motivated on a much more positive basis about exploring what's possible reaching their potential over a longer period of time and, and having a positive experience along the way so it is back to that old sort of are you motivated by fear or love um you know it comes back to those sort of old philosophies if you like about what's what's important in in how we approach things but performance wise we know we need to be in that state of flow and being in a state of flow is not one where you're focused on an outcome it's one where you're absorbed in the moment um you talk about winning not satiating our bodies uh, and minds and i think this relates back to what i spoke about in terms of the language of between sort of doing and being and and the different parts of our brain, I know you explained. So can you just talk a little bit about this? So this is uh, really, we have sort of different systems, different things going on in our brains. And the, the short term winning piece, so we win a race, we feel great, we get the dopamine hit. Um, you know, we win the, the game of Monopoly against our family members. You know, that feels good. It's a short term hit. But we're playing to a to a short term reward system that always leaves you wanting to go and do it again. That each time you get that hit, you tend to get it slightly less. And really, we're talking about a, a cycle of addiction, if you like. We don't have to. That's not the only way. It's not the only part of our brains that we can use and that we can tap into. And of course, that's not a great. It's, it's a limited part of who we are. If we actually allow ourselves to think about uh, the rational way we think and things that have meaning and a purpose, then we tap into a different part of our brain that leaves us with a much kind of longer term sense of what matters, what's important and satisfaction, if you like, over the over the longer period. And we can choose which reward system we feed so we can feed the sort of short term dead deadlines, targets, winning races or we can enable ourselves to develop this longer sense of what's important connected to the world around us, connected to people around us, which often people use the term purpose for that. It's your why. It's making a difference to the world around you, the change you want to see in the world, your legacy. All of those worlds, words are in that space, which is giving us a connection to something with deeper meaning, which is much more sustainable. In terms of the parts of your brain, then I guess you're talking about the limbic part being that short termism and then the prefrontal cortex being the more purpose driven. Absolutely. Look at you. Neuroscience coming out there. Uh, love it. Yeah, absolutely. We, we can play to the sort of the, the survival part that you know, enabled us to react to the tiger coming to get us. Or we now have the opportunity. That's how we've distinguished ourselves. That's how we've grown in a different way. And our you know, brains are larger than, than other animals because we have this other opportunity. We have this other um, part to explore that we've developed. So it seems madness then that we are actually over-relying 
on the the old kind of reptilian <laughs> survival part when we really don't need to anymore. So moving from zero sum to collaboration and connection, which is what you're arguing for, really it's what you what you're pointing towards is evolution in action. I guess it is. Yeah, we have a lot of choice in this, and I think that's the thing. I don't think we're making sensible choices about how we describe success, about what we value in each other, in ourselves each day, in society, and it's a bit of a time to take stock because some of that old stuff you know we're not in a 19th century world where we're fighting battles um on a on a military field all the time we're in a different world we've got different challenges whether it's global pandemics inequality environmental protection we're in a different world and we need to think differently in order to be able to tackle and work together um, with these challenges to, to make sure we, we change the way we, we live. And so it's about challenging some of those assumptions that have got so deep in within our culture that just aren't helping us anymore. You mentioned the pandemic, and I do think you have your finger on the pulse in terms of what the pandemic has revealed in terms of people seeking and needing connection and prioritising that and prioritising, for example, the NHS, where clearly people don't enter the NHS on the whole to seek financial reward, which is the way society rewards winners. And then as well, something else that everyone's been watching is The Last Dance with Michael Jordan. And I know that you've got some pretty strong feelings about that. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the pandemic and The Last Dance and how that relates to what we're talking about? (laughs) Sure. Um, That's an interesting combination, isn't it? The pandemic and The Last Dance. Um, I think you're really right about how we've got a different value system that's that's suddenly appeared in the last few months and we've got different heroes haven't we we were expecting to have lycra clad athletes at the olympics winning medals doing incredible you know impossible things in tight lycra rippling muscles beautiful athletes and instead we've got really different heroes who are really ordinary people like you and i doing extraordinary things showing unbelievable dedication commitment resilience wearing saggy old tunics and a stethoscope and loads of PPE, which is horrific to wear, isn't it, all the time? Um, and, and I love that we have suddenly been able to see some different heroes consistently day in, day out, because these are people who are making a real difference over the long term. Uh, and that, for me, is a great adjustment that, that this has enabled. The challenge, of course, is whether we then just suddenly switch back or not. I think the longer this goes on, the harder it is for us to just automatically switch back. We seem to have this um, obsession that somehow we need top-class football to come back to make our lives okay. I'm not so sure that that that's the thing that, that the whole country needs. I'm sure sport is an important part of our lives, but sport at all levels is an important part of our lives. And I definitely like to see us, again, making some adjustment and, and prioritising sport in different areas of our society. So we've got a different perspective, haven't we, from the pandemic? Suddenly we've looked at things that are affecting all of us at the same time in different ways, but you know, all of our lives have been touched by by the pandemic in some way. And that gives us perspective. And perspective is a really important factor when we're looking at what success means. Because suddenly the thing I thought was, you know, earth-endingly important this summer, whether it was getting a business target or winning Olympic medal or whatever it might be, that's just in one fell swoop been wiped away so then it forces me to ask okay so what actually matters now to reevaluate that so perspective that this has brought is really helpful and that's something is i really hope we can try and hang on to how do i then how do i then segue into the last dance um (laughs) 
from the pandemic to the last dance. We've all been glued to our TV sets because we're all stuck at home um, and we can't go out socialising. So the last dance has, has provided a, um, a talking point really about who our heroes are, what they're like and what's okay, what we think is acceptable in the pursuit of winning. So the ultimate winner, Michael Jordan, you know, brilliant, brilliant uh, athlete, no question. But what's the really interesting question to me is whether the fact that he won, does that mean that the way he behaved, um, it's all justified? Or is it okay to think, do you know what? I think there are better ways of going about some of those situations, better ways of working with your team. Um, Does it excuse it all or not? Because I think it can set quite a dangerous precedent if we think it's okay, you know, as long as you win, as long as you get those outcomes, it's okay to treat people badly or to be kind of shouting. Um, And, you know, to me, I've seen some really interesting debates on this and I'm definitely um, in the camp where, you know, I can think he's a brilliant athlete, but that doesn't mean that everything he did was was right and something that I admire in the same way as I admire his athleticism. Since watching, actually, I just have been watching YouTube clips of his greatest performances and the joy he was able to give people in terms of his performances. They were otherworldly. But then it, it does beg the question, could he have been the player he was without those parts to his character? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And it's interesting, this... You know, he is so brilliant and you use that word otherworldly. And I think, you know, the flaws to me show, you know, I love the flaws because actually he is a he is a really flawed human who plays brilliantly. But it's almost like because we see that otherworldly athletic performance, we just can't allow the flaws to be part of that picture. Whereas actually all of our heroes are flawed and I really wish we could show them in all their flaws because actually they're, they're very similar to, to the rest of us. And I don't think it helps putting athletes on pedestals or kind of making them into sort of mythical, magical characters. Um, and I don't think it's helpful to sort of give any sort of sense that, well, as long as you achieve something incredible, actually there are certain things that it's okay to do that normally it's not. You know, you cross a line of what's decent behaviour, you've crossed that line and that in itself will have an impact on the other people in the team. It will have a much longer term impact on the experience of others and the development of their careers. And obviously this was about, this was about him. But from my perspective, I want to know more about, you know, the others, if you like, and, and what they experienced and how it affected the development of them reaching their potential. And, and that's the sort of situation we're all faced in within families, within organisations, is actually how do we help others around us to be at their best, not just make me look amazing? I read an interesting article that you wrote about Roger Federer and his defeat in last year's Wimbledon final and how he focuses on his performance rather than the outcome. So in the interview on court after defeat, he, he talks about how well he, he played. And you talk about rather than only focusing on who won and who lost, instead perhaps shifting focus to celebrating what people, teams, players are able to create together and on that day last year Federer and Djokovic the winner they did create a masterpiece yeah sure I I love Roger Federer and I love watching him and I think he's a brilliant athlete because I actually think he does approach things with a real mastery mindset and he looks for brilliance in playing he uses that competitive environment 
to display that, but I don't see that same sort of desperation of, you know, of course he's, he's exhausted and of course he wanted to win. And of course there is a level of disappointment, but I also think he himself, he immediately is proud of the brilliant play that he did and rightly so. And he immediately sort of recognises that. And I think that's part of what's helped him have such a long career is because of his perspective there. I mean, I'm I'm not against competition. I'm not against brilliance. I'm quite the opposite. But I think the narrow framework we're squeezing onto winning and making it ever narrower is, you know, is stifling us from moments of brilliance. It's not helping people to get into that Federer mindset, if you like, where actually he's looking for the brilliance in what he does, not purely the outcome each time. And I think that, you know, it's about setting a different framework in how we can get the best out of ourselves and competition is a part of that but it's not the only thing okay we are talking sports obviously but we're also talking about society more broadly and so for example the focus has tended to be in society terms on gross domestic product rather than say the well-being of people or indeed the well-being of the planet so just outline your vision for how perhaps you think things could be and how we could shift priorities and attitudes somewhat yeah i I mean i I just quickly on that gdp piece there's some brilliant books written about this and a lot of thinking that again we tend to measure success in in a very narrow way and gdp of course is you know excludes tons of parts of our society excludes mothers caring for children excludes all sorts of things so therefore we don't value them it's about what do we value what do we think is important what is going to be important to looking after the environment to having equality in society to having a, a healthy society what are the things we need for that you know GDP is, is, is a tiny part of that. So I think for me, the, the long win for itself is also not a, it's not, a, it's not a formula that says it has to look like this. It's an approach that is asking us to shift our mindsets, if you like, that then we'll behave in a different way that prioritises three things. And the first thing is clarifying what's matter, what matters in a much broader way and over the longer term. So success isn't defined by a short term deadline, winning a race next week or next month or next year. Actually, that race has to have meaning over the longer term, has to have that sense of purpose that's going to involve other people. So clarifying what matters over the longer term and with a broader set of criteria. The second thing is a constant learning approach. So we're really focused much more on mastery than outcomes, on how we approach things, on the values, the way we do things matters, not just the outcome. It's not just about whether I won the medal or not. It's actually what's all the stuff that I carry with me every day when I don't carry that medal. I carry the experience. I carry all the things that I learned from that, that I then bring into the next part of my life. And there are so many opportunities to keep learning, to keep growing. It's not about the grades you got at school. Learning now is a lifelong process. And the third thing is about prioritising people and connection. So again, it's not just getting those tasks done. It's about thinking about how do I get my to-do list done in a way that's meaningful for me and for the people around me? How can I connect at a deeper level, going back to the beginning of the conversation, to really understand the person I'm with so that we can explore what we might be able to do together, what we might be able to co-create that's new, that's different, that has a new value, 
rather than how can I be better than you or how can I speak louder than you or give my views on and sort of beat yours down. So it's a prioritising connection and seeing success as well this week. It's not just did I do my to-do list, it's actually what positive connections did I make? How have I collaborated with others? How have I explored and got to know somebody in a, in a kind of deeper level and understand what's important to them that will enable us to work together more effectively in the future? So that clarification, constant learning and connection give us a different way of approaching and exploring what's possible. Yes, and connection is key. We are social animals and a lack of connection is is bad for our health. I know loneliness has been shown to be a killer. And just to finish, let's return to when you were a diplomat in Basra and something that you and your team used to do, which I've heard that you talk about, a key part of your culture, really, prioritising checking in with each other. Sure. So when I was working in Basra in the middle of the conflict uh, or towards the end of the really violent part of the conflict, about sort of 2008, um, 2009 time, um, we were living and working on a military base in the airport uh, at Basra. And... It was not uh, an easy environment. It was a hostile environment. We had incoming rockets, mortars, sirens going off all the time. Really, really unstable, really difficult way to live. We carried body armour with us everywhere we went around that little military base. And every time the sirens went off, every time, um, you know, that meant that signalled that somebody was firing something unpleasant in at us, then we had a little protocol where we would kind of immediately have to kind of get on the ground and um, you know get to a safe place if you if there wasn't anything immediately available put on your body armor and we would then immediately radio each other we'd be in groups of sort of four or five people other diplomats others working with us all sorts of different people and we would then check how are you and just sort of really check in where are you you know how are you feeling and we would check in again at the end of the day um, and it always came ahead of work. It, we always had tons of work. We didn't stop working in a war zone because there's no off time. There's no time where the conflict ceases and there's no weekend in that environment. So it's not like we didn't have plenty of work to do. But it's almost because we were in that hostile environment, it kind of somehow gave us permission to really connect with each other. And of course, that meant that when one of us did feel a bit anxious, we immediately picked up on that. We were immediately able to offer support. And that's actually something that we're seeing much more at the moment, where rather than how are you? Yes, I'm fine. There's a genuine um, how are you doing in this lockdown? Because it is affecting people in lots of different ways. And I think that's such a valuable opportunity to connect by really caring about how others are experiencing all sorts of challenges. We never know what's going on in people's lives. Um, and for me, I thought, my goodness, I can't believe it's taken a war zone to be in a sort of working team where people are really going out of their way to be proactively caring, not just come and tell me if you've got a problem, but actually I'm looking out for you. And I think that's something that would be great if we can continue to carry forward that looking out for each other. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Life Lessons podcast. If you want to get in touch, please drop me a line via my website, simonmundy.com or on social media at Simon Mundy.